Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of Sly Flourish's Lazy DM Prep. This is a weekly show shot 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Times in which I typically go through steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master while preparing for my Sunday D&D game. Today, however, we're going to have a special show. My campaign is over. So we're going to talk about what happened in my campaign, how it ended, and get my overall thoughts on running a year-long, uh, roughly just, just under 50-session-long Eberron campaign. So uh, this show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Uh, you too can become a patron of Sly Flourish by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, uh, but most of all, they help pay for all of the things that it takes to make shows like this possible. So if you're a patron of Sly Flourish, uh, thank you very much. My campaign is done. Uh, and it was awesome. And the, the the campaign finish was awesome. I did not blow the ending, which is always great. It would suck to blow the ending. Luckily for me, I don't think I've ever blown the ending. Uh, and I'll give some tips about how to run an ending and hopefully not blow it. Um, why don't I give you those tips right up front? Why, why waste time? You want to know what the tips are? Let me give them to you right now. So the tips are, I have sort of a, a, a three-ish step process. I think it's three... Three main tips. Uh, one, run a really cool boss fight, right? Run a run a fun boss fight where they get to fight the big bads, maybe one or more big bads. In my game, there was like four big bads in one fight. A great big complicated fight. Um, is Banner dead? No, but he did lose his arm. We'll get to that in a minute. So um, you have uh, all your bosses throw waves of guys in. So like a way to have a boss fight that really is challenging, especially in your tier three-ish area. Um is that you can throw, uh, you know, waves of guys. So you might have a lot of guys, situations change, more people come in, more bad guys show up. Don't drop your big bad boss in right away because they're going to get ganked right away. So have your boss come in after time. You know, uh, there's a lot of different ways to run a boss fight and a lot of tips for that. But run a nice boss fight. Make it, go ahead and have it be long. For me, I had it my whole session. The boss fight was one whole session on its own. So we didn't have to have a lot of stuff and just have different scales, different things changing, things exploding, parts of the room breaking away. Do big, fun things for your boss fight. Uh, that's tip number one. Tip number two, give them what they want. Don't try to do anything weird. Don't try to twist the whole storyline at the end. Don't make it a great mystery of like, oh my God, now it's all this way. Uh, give them what they want, right? If they, if they ask, and how do you know what that is? Ask them right? A few sessions before, what would really make this campaign awesome for you? Like if you look back at the campaign, what do you want to have happen? Sometimes like not die is always said or stick it to that Lido skull, right? Yeah. Okay. Let them stick it to Lido skull. Um, you know, ask them what they want. Right. And then, and sometimes, you know, you get some stuff from that. And then also think, well, what do they want? Yeah, well, they've been acting a certain way. What do they want? They probably want to stop this thing they've been going after. Don't take it away from them. Don't twist it and turn it around. It's okay to do that in the middle of a campaign. It's terrible to do it at the end of a campaign. Uh, we got in big talks and every time I bring it up, I get half the people that are like right on and then half the people that are like, oh, you're, you're being dumb. Compare the ending of Breaking Bad with the ending of Game of Thrones. Breaking Bad, uh, Walt gets everything he needs to end the uh, to end it cleanly. He kills all the people that need to be killed. He saves the people that need to be saved. He gives money to his son. Uh, he saves Jesse and then he's killed himself, right? Spoilers. And, but every, you know, all, everything was tightened up in a, in a show that never had a tight conclusion 
for every one of its seasons, they said, we got to tighten it all up. And even though it was kind of contradictory from the way the rest of the show went, it, it's what the audience wanted. Give the audience what they want. Give your players what they want. Game of Thrones, the show's all based on the fact that there's twists and turns and you never know where it's going to go. And then they decided in the end, like, let's have one more final twist and turn. And then they did. And you're like, wow, congratulations on taking the strongest female character and making her a psychotic villain. And thanks for taking this other villain and having her get buried. And thanks for all these storylines that you never tied up. There were like 15 storylines they never tied up in that series. Ruined the whole series, in my opinion. Like all these things. Like seriously, the whole Jamie Lannister arc is he goes back to Cersei and they die in a rock slide. Spoilers. You know, oh, come on. Varys the spider gets burned to death and then turns out to be right. Oh, weak. So many stupid things, you know. So don't do anything crazy at the end. Give them what they want. That's 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 tip number two. Tip number three, ask them what happens one year later. So when the game is over, you have the you have probably the only opportunity. And there's like trucks running around. We have a big snowstorm. So in your you have the only opportunity in your game where you can completely hand the story over to the players and let them run with it is at the very end because you don't have anything else. It's done. Story's done. You don't have anything. And now you can hand over the whole thing to everybody and say, um, tell me what happened to your character. One year has passed. What happened to your character? And the stories that come out of that are awesome. I've run it. I've done that maybe a, at least a half a dozen times, probably more. And every time I've gotten tales about the characters and ways they were tied together and relationships with NPCs and all sorts of stuff. And they just, they just hit me. People become one of the masked lords of Waterdeep. Uh, people get married to the NPC that they were with the whole game. Um, just wonderful stuff. And I'll talk about like what happened in one year later with the characters we had. And it was just beautiful. So that last step of handed story over to the players, say one year passes from the end of the campaign. Where's the character now? And you get these beautiful stories. They're really wonderful. So in summary, the three, the three things you want to do. One, run a good boss fight. And if you want details on running a good boss fight, uh, dig them up. Two, give them what they want. Conclude the adventure in a way that's satisfying for the players. Don't try to be crafty and creative and sly and turn 90 degrees. Just give them what they want. And three, ask them what happens one year after the event. Two, three, three ways to make a campaign that has so far not failed me. And I've really enjoyed the results. So what happened in this campaign? So, well, the final battle... Uh, was crazy, as you imagine. I think my only complaint was like so many crazy things were going on that like the combat didn't matter. Um, they would fight stuff, but then they would get killed when something else would blow up. So they opened up a portal. <coughs> they opened up a portal and sucked the entire main kyber crystal into the portal, which then created this massive energy surge and blew the heads off of four Medusa mages who were trying to concentrate on it. And that meant that fighting the Medusa mages didn't really matter. Um, so there's little things like that, but I don't, nobody seemed to mind, you know, nobody seemed to care. So they captured Leto's skull and brought him to justice. They blew up the crystal. The weapon was not created. They destroyed the simulacra of the daughters of Sorakel. They sent entropy, the super powerful entity that was actually the, it was the, the weapon was this being called entropy. That was sort of like a living evil wish spell. Uh, they managed to push it into Dalcor along with uh, Lack, the 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 um, emissary of the Dreaming Dark, threw it all through the portal and shut the portal down. 
the last thing that happened is is Entropy slashed at Banner. Banner was bashing Entropy into this portal. And when he bashed it with his shield arm, uh, Entropy slashed him, hit the shield arm, and disintegrated his whole arm, right? Because that's what Entropy does is disintegrate. So, you know, Banner falls back, missing his arm. All the bad guys are dead. The portal is shut. Now they're like, what did we do? We just sent a living wish spell into Dalcor. What's that going to be like? Who knows, right? I, little threads like that are okay, where it's like, it's still concluding. They saved the world. They saved uh, Corvair, right? But did they destroy a whole other world in the process? You know, really cool. So, um, yeah, that's it. Snark Dice says, that'll take care of Black 13 forever. Yeah, Black 13 plus, you know, the Crimson King all in a different world. Who knows what that world would be like? So really fun conclusion, really big fight. Uh, they were almost wiped out. They really believed. More than once they said, we're all going to die here anyway, so let's do this, right? And I remember at least a couple times they said, I'm going to open up an arcane gate in the middle of the portal and try to rip that crystal right out of the thing and see what happens. Because worst is we're all going to die and we're all dying anyway. So they were like really on the edge. And, you know, but like an empowered lightning bolt, you know, did 60 damage or something and ripped... Um, Sora Ketra, who was just devastatingly, she was just throwing these spells and knocking people down. Cones of cold, big empowered cones of cold and stuff. And um, he hit her with a 60-point lightning bolt after she'd been wounded a bunch, and it blew her apart, right? And then she turned into snow, and that was the end of Sora, Sora Kel. Uh, they banished Sora Mania uh, with her big-ass Warhammer, and they got rid of her for a while, and then she came back and started hitting people with a Warhammer. It hit him like crazy, 110 damage, really brutal. So really hard fight, and they were really on the edge. But they pulled it off, and I, I pulled a little bit of punches, but not really. Uh, they, they pulled it off. And the things that they did weren't just combat things. They did a lot of, like, casting Arcane Gate to teleport things away. Uh, what's that like? Uh, for Sora Ketra, I used the one of the uh, Spellcaster... Uh, let's take a look and find out. Uh, I used one of the Spellcaster... Uh, it's in my campaign archive because it's over, and it makes me sad. Uh, NPCs, Sora Ketra. Uh, she was an ab abjurer stat block. So a CR nine, uh, with seventh level spells. Uh, she had a permanent fly and she was able to, and she had a staff of power. So she, she was pretty well empowered. Um, and she was hard, but yeah. And I gave her, uh, yeah, she had cone of cold, but I had her casting at like six level. So she's just, there's these huge cones of cold that were doing like 40 points of damage. And, um, yeah, really, really fun stuff. Um, and they pulled it off and it was great. So one year later, what happened? So I asked now, I, I, I did warn the players a couple weeks ahead of time. Hey, at the end of this, we're going to ask like, where did your character end up one year later? And we went through. And so Zarentir said he finally left his family, uh, cause they were a bunch of jerks and he started up his own airship business in the Lazar principalities. Uh, he partnered up with Shane Husk to do Joko like cruises where uh you know they he did all the things that you could do with an airship he moved goods he fenced goods he smuggled people and he ran these like junkets where like like publicity junkets and and, and pleasure cruises uh, where people would come on but he would partner with shane husk so it was like hey do you want to go on a cruise with shane notable author shane husk and then they they did that so that was really awesome uh shane husk that's right brought leto skull to the orum uh and he was tried by the orum and the Orem said, you are convicted, and that means you have to work with us as a sage for the rest of your life. And that's exactly what Leto Skull kind of wants because he's, like, really smart. And, like, you know that's going to go bad. You know, like, Leto Skull end up being in the inner ring of the, you know, Orem again. So the idea that, like, he left the Orem and then went back to the Orem is really funny. Um, 
Shane Husk wrote a book on the second morning, but it was really long and not well edited. So it was never as popular as his first book, which I thought was just hysterical. And then he really enjoyed his junkets uh, going with Zarentir. And he had like a small sort of uh, condominium in the rich part of Sh of Sharn where he would just kind of sit and re re write his books, you know, very, very, very good. Uh, Chi... Uh, spent a, a great deal of time exploring the mysteries of the Mornland. So she went, she stayed in the Mornland. She stayed in Salvation, actually, and went out to the Mornland and found a bunch of Warforged parts and including brought a bunch of, like a bag full of arms uh, to give Banner a new arm. Um, and uh, yeah, just really kind of understanding like the mysteries and the connections between, you know, the Warforged and all the weird Warforged creatures that are out there in the Mornland. Uh, Banner also stayed in Salvation and and spent most of his days. He did not return to the um, the followers of the Becoming God, which I was surprised of. Uh, Shift did, however. And uh, so Banner kind of spent his days sort of connecting Warforged with humanity uh, and went on a lot of adventures with Chi and, got, and kept getting new arms. Like, hey, you probably don't recognize me because of my red arm. Stuff like that. Um, so that was really cool. Uh, Shift had probably what I thought was a really interesting background. So she did go back to the followers of the Becoming God and help them come up with sort of community fairs to reinforce the connections between the followers of the Becoming God, which are all Warforged, and the uh, other humanoids in the areas, the, 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 the farmers and stuff like that. So she basically did Warforged Renaissance fairs uh, for over and over. But as she did it, um, she also moved Crash's personality, her brother, who was kind of an evil... Kind of change, put him into like a small teddy bear kind of thing that she carries around. So she's got crash. Her brother's kind of in this teddy bear to make sure he can't do anything too badly. But of course, you know, being in a teddy bear doesn't mean he can't do terrible things. But he's not. He's really kind of wondering. I think. I think he probably. Um, uh, I think he probably uh, uh, left his ways as a member of the Emerald Claw behind. Um, and over time, she started to shut herself off for longer and longer periods of time until eventually it was like 100 years. And then hundreds of years later, a bunch of adventurers found this rusted statue in the center of an old, decrepit fair uh, that knew about the second morning. Like they had to go. She became a quest objective for another adventuring group a thousand years later, which I thought was awesome. They came to her to say, we need to know what happened in the last morning. And she's the only one around that still does. So very, very, very cool ending. Uh, and then Saber, uh, who was a member of the Monk of the Four Winds, continued his study of the Four Winds uh, and tried to rehabilitate his friend Scar, uh, once a former companion who then said that he wanted to tear apart the Four Winds and became a mercenary for the Droam. Um, eventually, uh, Saber became the leader of the Four Winds Monastery and actually was able to astrally project himself to the ruins of the Four Winds, uh, the Four Winds monks in the plain of Laminia, uh, the Twilight Forest. And that's where his path ended. So I thought those were just wonderful, you know, very, very beautiful uh, uh, ending stories to these characters that we spent a year with, you know, and I really just loved it. And, you know, it makes me tear up, right? Because it's like these are, you know, we have these beautiful characters and they were so much fun and all this stuff we did. And then you think about like this year and how hard this year was anyway. And for us to just sort of watch these characters grow uh, was really great. So boy, boy, did I, I really just fell in love with all of that. Um, boy, I love Eberron. So I've played in Eberron before. I've, I've run a, at least two campaigns in Eberron before in my, in my life. Um, maybe a little bit more. Uh, 
And I just, but, but this one I think is the one where I really poured myself more and more into the lore. I really, my goal was to squeeze as much as I could out of the book Eberron Rising of the Last War. And I feel like I did. I feel like I got a lot out of it. And, and I recommend that, right? I, I tried to play the book as it was meant to be used, not as I wanted to use it, uh, which wasn't really, I didn't really have a way that I wanted to use it that was different. Um, but I really loved um, starting in Sharn. You know, I, I love splitting the campaign up into this two big acts. Act one is Sharn and act two is the Mornland, right? And, I, and then a fair bit of travel between the two. Uh, I really, I really like that. Uh, I did, I'm thinking about it, and, and, and as I start to run Rime of the Frost Maiden, um, I'm taken by how personal the campaign was for me because it's, I've run homebrew campaigns, but not a lot of them recently. Uh, not a lot of them since fifth edition has been out. So six, seven years. Most everything I've run has been a published campaign. And I certainly felt the a deeper connection with the campaign because I built it myself because like all the stories were there. It's like, and things like I, I knew I wanted to have Blaine the monorail in there as Karshak. And I knew I was, you know, there were certain things I knew I wanted to do. And I had these like images and pictures, but I also, I think I did a good job of keeping it flexible so that as the game would change, I'd change. An example of that was originally I thought, Oh, I got to get them over to Metro, the city of Metro which is on the eastern coast of the Mornland because that's what the book, that, that city made the most sense for what I wanted to do. And I remember like, I don't know how the hell it's going to get him from Eston to Metro and why that, and then I was like, why don't I just flip the two and Eston is Metro and, or I'll just change like, you know, I'll just change Eston to what I want it to be. And that was so much smoother. And the whole rest of the campaign locked into place. As soon as I turned in Eston, as soon as I realized that like Eston was your city on the edge of the Mornland and making is your city in the middle of the Mornland. And they will have a different feeling between the two because of that. Uh, everything went much smoother. Uh, it definitely took more work. Uh, homebrewing this campaign, and 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 if you've watched, there's maybe a couple of you that have watched all these videos. There's a lot of them. I don't. I can't imagine a lot of people have watched 50 hours of video about me prepping an Eberron campaign. But you've seen the work I've been doing mostly, right? I'm just some work I've done offline because I was running for two different groups. Um, but it was a lot of work, right? It definitely took more work to wrangle it. Mostly, I would say the the effort and the energy was in the the, the, the threading together of the campaign when I didn't know where it was supposed to go. Uh, certainly more work than a well-written published adventure would be. Um, like certain, you know, like Curse of Strahd or Tomb of Annihilation probably took less work. Uh, but I both, I adore those campaigns too. Um, so it's, there's a lot of upfront work in getting a hardback campaign where you want it to go, but then week by week, it's far easier to run it. And I, I think that will be true with Rime of the Frostmaiden. Like, I did some prep work up front. We'll probably talk a little bit about it next week, but I did a bunch of prep work to kind of get Rime of the Frostmaiden where I wanted it. And now that I have it there, running it's going to be a lot easier, I think. You know, famous last words. Um, so what else? Um, yeah. When it comes to all the material, there's a ton of Eberron material out there, but really you don't need it all. And you can start with Re Eberron Rising of the Last War and squeeze as much as you can out of that. And then I would recommend exploring Eberron, which is what I would consider to be the uh, the, the Eberron Director's Cut by uh, Keith Baker, which you can get on the DMs Guild. And I did, and it's a it's another beautiful, beautiful book. Um, and uh, it really expands Eberron in a lot of ways. So you can squeeze... You know, between these two books, you can squeeze a lot from them. Um, 
And there, those would be my two go-to books. And then when you need to fill in other things, you can go to the old 3.5. I don't know the fourth edition had a lot of Eberron stuff. 3.5 had a lot of Eberron stuff. Uh, so you can go to your Eberron 3.5 collection and fill in the blanks when you need them, but you don't have to. Uh, I mentioned uh, that I loved running Sharn and, and then the Mornland locations. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I felt like I was happy with how the fronts worked. Obviously, Leto Skull was sort of the main enemy. But as he started to ally with the daughters of Sora Kel, they became more, uh, you know, more of a front. The Emerald Claw fell off the list mostly because that they were taken care of in Sharn. And I didn't know that that was how it was going to work out. So it, it kind of worked out the same way for both my groups. So I guess it steered a little bit in that direction. But it was, you know, it was fun letting the fronts drive themselves. It was fun for me to sit back and think. Leto Skald just lost his massive Eberron shard. It blew up over the middle of Corvair. Where is he going to go? Like he's, and, and his answer was he's going to go home, right? He's going to go home to the people who put him in there in the first place, which is the Daughters of Sorakel, and that's what he did. So that worked, that worked really well. Uh, during the, uh, the first half of this campaign, I was reading Stephen King's Dark Tower books again. This is one of my favorite book series. Uh, and I was just reading like Wastelands and Wizard and Glass and Wolves of Kala, which I think are like the, my three favorite books of the series. And uh, I was able to kind of bring a lot of that material into this game, particularly in the Mornland. And, uh, and I love doing that. It was, it was fun to just lift a lot of stuff wholesale out of those books and then bring it into my D&D campaign and have it work, right? You, you have to know what to bring in and not what to, so, or what not, what not to. Mostly you can bring locations and characters but you can't bring plots because you don't know if your character is going to follow the plot so it's far better to bring in location and character and situation than it is to bring um yeah blaine is a pain and that is the truth exactly so that's a good example so like the biggest thing that i lifted wholesale out of the dark tower series was blaine the mono who i turned into karshak the 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 insane warforged super powerful military grade lightning rail and but how you know i wasn't going to do a bunch of riddles it was more like, what does he want? And it's like, he doesn't even know. Like he has a, he has a mate that he wants. So I, I kind of changed the story around so that it fit a D&D world rather than a riddle contest. I could have dropped a riddle contest in there, but you know, I don't know. That didn't feel right either. Um, it was a little too close. So uh, the other one is that there are two books, Arcana of the Ancients and Beasts of Flesh and Steel, uh, made by Monty Cook Games. Uh, of course, my copy, well, I have one copy right here. So, um, and these books are about like high fantasy technology stuff, techno fantasy books, science fantasy. And they were wonderful books. Both of them were wonderful books to have on hand for the Mornland because there are tons of weird ass monsters, you know, half technology. Look at these guys, right? Like, you know, those guys look like they're wandering around the Mornland, right? And the Mornland is such a kooky place that you can put anything in there and have it make sense. So I use these guys a lot. I like them a lot. They didn't play like your standard fifth edition monsters all the time, but that was fine too. If you found a monster that didn't work well, uh, you could just not use it again, right? And it worked fine. So there's also interesting treasure in here that you can give that's way different than the treasure that you would normally get in a fifth edition campaign. So uh, I really liked having these books on hand. It was lucky that, that I had these books on hand when I was running the Mornland. So Arcana of the Ancients and Beasts of Flesh and Steel, if you want more monsters, uh, I recommend. At least get the PDFs. Um, let's see. Where, drive through RPG. Uh, Beasts. Uh, let's do Arcana of the Ancients. 
Arcana of the Ancients. Oh, it's low. Uh, there is a preview, so you can download a, a, a preview, and the PDF is 20 bucks, and it is definitely worth it. It's a great, big, beautiful PDF. I recommend it. Um, you can buy the hardcover version from uh, Money Cook Games directly. The other one is called Beasts of Flesh and Steel. Uh, take a look at that. Beasts of Flesh and Steel. That is all monsters. So it's an ex it's a monster expansion book. Uh, that one is probably also 20 bucks. No, $18. Uh, so, but that, that is all monsters. So I would start with our kind of the ancients. And if you really dig that, then go and, um, pick up piece of flesh and steel as well. Uh, and they're beautiful books. If you want physical versions, I backed the Kickstarter when it came out, uh, whatever it was two years ago and got the physical books and the physical books are, are beautiful, beautiful, beautiful books. So, um, yeah, I like that a lot. Um, I should turn all of these into checklists. So I can check them off when I'm done talking about them. Da -da. Whoops. Oh God, I'm so. Sometimes I'm terrible at Notion. Eh. Eh. Turn into to dos. Uh, I love Debron. Yes, I uh, felt stronger connection. Homebrew. Yes, homebrewing was took more work. Yes, uh, Rising the Last War and Ebron are the go-to books. Yes, uh, I loved running half the campaign in Sharn. Yes, I love letting the front run says yes. I love layering in Dark Tower. Yes, I love Archon and the Ancients. Yes. Um, Oh, yeah. So I'll tell you another fun thing, and I don't think this would have happened if I had been running a published campaign, is learning learning new tricks and styles for uh, for for running different kinds of situations in D&D. &D. And the example that comes out is point crawls. Uh, I did a whole video and an article about point crawls. Uh, if you go to Slight Flourish and you go to point crawl, point crawls for cities and overland travel. I did it back in January. And um, it was a really interesting approach towards travel, towards overland travel that I hadn't really internalized yet. I didn't even know about it. I didn't know I had a name. And I was able to learn about it. And I love that because it's like I'm, I've been playing D&D for like 30 years, and yet I'm still learning all kinds of new, new things. I love learning new things. And I love like lear learning them and then studying them and diving deep into them and then turning them into something that I can hand to other people for them to use is, is what, I, what I really dig. I really get my joy out of that. And um, so it was neat. It's kind of funny that I sort of picked up point crawls halfway through when I could have used them more in other circumstances. Um, but it's a very powerful tool, and it was really fun to learn how to use them. I used it heavily in the city of making. I picked up a tool, GraphViz, GraphViz.it, which is able to do it. So if you're interested in point crawls, there's um, uh, probably this article and the YouTube video on the topic that I, that I would recommend and have lots of links to lots of other sources of information to learn more about point crawls. Um, but that was a neat thing to learn uh, about halfway through the campaign. That is something I will I will take. I don't think I would have learned it as well playing a published adventure because the published adventures kind of handle that stuff for you. Um, yeah, the other trick that I learned uh, that I use extensively is the go grab a map from Dyson Logos and then fill it out yourself. Uh, I did that all the time. I don't know how many different locations I have. We can take a look. Um, but if we look at the locations that I've got in um, uh, that I used in Eberron in rising in, in my Eberron second morning campaign, uh, so many of them, like you can see all the Dyson maps that I, that I went and grabbed. There's a bunch of Dyson maps in uh, rising of the last war. So you should start with those because they, they're there for this. And I did use a bunch of those, but then a lot of times I would just go and grab a, I, I just go to the Dyson logo site and find a map. And the, the first suitable map that, that hit the general situation that I needed, I would use. 
and then I would use uh, different tools uh, to annotate them. Uh, I, I'll give a, a tip. There's a tool called Zoho Annotator, uh, which is a plugin for Chrome that you can use to add labels onto a map. So you can bring up a blank Dyson map and then add evocative labels to the rooms. And that's enough to prep a pretty good session. So yeah, his map archive, like Dyson, Dyson is a, is a treasure in our, in our, uh, industry. And you can actually buy big packages of his maps and download them. Uh, so you can have them on your own, on your own side. But yeah, I really love those point crawls and, and, and that use of Dyson logos maps to fill in locations um, are really, really powerful, really powerful tips, really powerful tools that, that helped me run this campaign. Um, what else? Uh, I tried. Um, yeah, so I really wanted to, again, sort of squeezing everything I could out of Rising the Last War. I wanted to try to bring in as many factions as I could into the game. I wanted to touch on stuff. So the history of the world, the history of the Dakani and Galifar and Sire, uh, the Dreaming Dark, Colseer, Argonesson. There's all these like interesting things. And like, I really tried to constantly dive back to Rising the Last War and find other factions, the King's Dark Lanterns and um, the uh, the Boromir clan and, you know, all of these different groups, the Droam and the Dask and the difference there, you know, all these different groups. There were some that I never got to touch on. I never got to touch on the um, uh, the what the, there's the crazy Rakshasa group, uh, the Lords of Dust. Um, so there's there's a bunch of other ones that I didn't have a chance to bring in, but I really tried as much as I could to bring those factions in, and I think it worked. I mean, I I, I got comments back from my players that are like they really love the lore of this place. They they enjoyed it, and I think there's something more to that. That like. There's a lot of complaints about Forgotten Realms, and you got to remember that like Forgotten Realms is really it was it's a it's like a 50 year old campaign world, right? Like Ed Greenwood was working on it well before D and D was even out, so it's built on a lot of old school European centric, you know, white dude approaches, right? And and it's built like you know a lot of Tolkien kind of stuff, and it's good as a solid fantasy world. I like the Forgotten Realms a lot, but it's built on that very sort of European centric view. Um, and, and built along the, a lot of the traditional routes of D and D, which is funny. Cause like the OSR group, I don't think really digs forgotten realms either. And there's lots of complaints about forgotten realms, quote, being quote unquote, the default setting for 5e. I don't think it is. Um, and I, I could argue all bet all day long about whether or not, uh, forgotten realms is the default setting. I do not believe it to be the default setting any more than I believe that that gridded combat. Oh, there's a cat. Uh, any more than I believe that gridded combat is the default combat style for 5e. I don't know, uh, but those get argued with me all the time. Um, but there's something refreshing about the way Eberron works. Like there's something refreshing about goblins aren't a bunch of, you know, black hearted, thieving cave dwellers. Goblins were once the, the prominent empire in Corvair, and they had a magical empire nearly as strong as, or even stronger than the magical empire that exists now called the Dakani. That's cool, right? Um, I think it's a little unfortunate that like dragons are stuck off in a whole other continent and dragons don't ever come there because it's called Dungeons and Dragons. You put dragons everywhere, right? There should be more dragons than Eberron, if you ask me. Um, so um, there's a lot of refreshing takes on the traditional tropes of D&D and Eberron. And I think that that makes it a really powerful setting. I'm pretty sure my groups would be more than happy to continue to run adventures there because it's a refreshing setting. The idea that like you have the Droam which is this monstrous nation and they're definitely sinister and scary, but they're not just evil and they don't, they're not just a bunch of monsters that want to kill you. They, they want to have an empire. Like I tried to make the drum a sympathetic villain and it worked, right? They're like, I get it. Like I remember Shane Husk was like, 
when he heard Sora Terraza say, when we have the weapon in our power, we'll be able to be a signatory nation and none of the other nations will be able to like threaten our borders again. And he's like, that's a pretty good reason, right? Like that makes sense. And you know, all the thoughts about all the, it brought up all the conversations of nuclear deterrence, right? And that's what I was going for. It's like, it's a nuclear deterrent. Like, hey, North Korea has the bomb. A lot harder to do anything about them when they have the bomb. So, um, uh, so I really enjoyed that. I love the lore. I love the style. I think it's a very progressive and, um, I mean, from my view, like I, it's hard for me to know, but like, it feels like a, you know, there's definitely more room for, you know, gnolls as a, as a race instead of just as monsters. The whole question of like, you know, all, are, are all orcs a bunch of dicks is no, not here. And that's kind of baked into the setting. So it works really well in that regard. So I really like Eberron from that standpoint. And I think there's a lot of things to do there. Um, and because the 3.5 books are out, there's a lot of areas that you can explore besides just like Sharn and, and the areas around Sharn. Um, so yeah, I really dig it. Uh, I mentioned the, fr the freeing moment when I could switch Metrol and Esten. So um, yeah. And so my, my final thought is that like, I really, uh, I really loved this campaign. Uh, I loved it to death and, 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 it, and I am in mourning skipping it. And it's, a you know, I guess I don't want to give too much, but like so far, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden hasn't grabbed me yet. And I think part of the reason it hasn't grabbed me is because I love this one so much. It's hard for me to kind of jump into a new one, particularly when it's like dark and dismal and cold and wet. And it's dark and dismal and cold and wet right here. Uh, and isolation when I'm isolated. So there's all these like, I, I went from this world that was like shining and bright with airships and massive cities of towers over the sky and huge wastelands filled with twisted abomination, you know, twisted monsters of a, of a, of a, of a hundred year war. Now I'm going to like the frozen North and it's, and it's sort of hard for me to make that transition. And I think it might be hard for my players to make that transition as well. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, so there, it turns out there has been a second morning and it's me having to leave the campaign. Um, so yeah, so that was, you know, boy, just, it was, it was, it was a really fun adventure really fun campaign, beautiful characters on both sides. I didn't even talk much about the characters on my Wednesday game. Uh, but likewise, we did the same, we did the same approach. Um, is the campaign archived? Uh, the campaign is archived, not just for patron subscribers. Uh, the, this, this archive is open so you can get it in the show notes. Uh, you can, I will link it if you want it. Uh, cause you, now there is a complete, uh, a final and complete. I think if I click share, copy link and I paste that, uh, that's it. The whole campaign is there. And you can, if you want, you know, you kind of have to muck through my notes. But you can learn all about the Wednesday group too, which we never really talked about here. You know, the different characters. We always talked about the Sunday characters. Um, but I can tell you a little bit about the Wednesday characters too. Um, and let's go to the Wednesday gallery view. Since I've got time, it's only, you know, we're only 35 minutes in. Uh, so we had five characters and we had one character that ended right at the end. Uh, for my Wednesday game. And that include uh, Lux with Elf Ears, who was a uh, shifter, not a shifter, a changeling spy uh, that had worked with uh, the noble houses. And he, uh, she had a connection to a King's Dark Lantern spy. Uh, and I forget their name now. Uh, met them again. Uh, House Falarn. Worked with House Falarn. Um Imperai, Imperai Durfalarn, who was a spy that worked for House Falarn uh, and went missing during the morning. And they found her 
uh, inside the city of Eston. And she was the one that kind of got them in that last. She was actually hired by Lido Skull uh, to find the path to get to um, Claw Rift and found the path, but didn't want to go there and gave the information to the characters when they met up again. So it was a fun character connection and a fun way for the character to be tied directly in. Uh, Lux ended up returning to House Falarn uh, and filed filed the report, said, here, I did your job, right? Stop the second morning. Here's the job. Uh, <coughs> and while waiting for the next assignment, um, decided to take on intelligence gathering, looking for other business opportunities, and then started an effort to rehabilitate the Warforged uh, and Warforged veterans and kind of make them... A lot of people cared a lot about the Warforged. So that was Lux. Koratash was really fun. Uh, Koratash... Uh, was a Kalishtar cleric uh, who had was made of two personalities, Korra and Tash. Korra being uh, kind of a, uh, a you know in-world humanoid, and Tash being a uh, a quarry, uh, one of the strange creatures from 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 uh, Dalcor. Uh, that meant she had a strong connection to Lack when she she was the holder of Lack in in this game, and uh, at the very end, Tash was split off from Korra during the final fight and then tash uh i think i don't think tash wasn't destroyed but tash and lack uh pushed back entropy into the portal again and tash was then cut off from cora and what we found out during the one year later was that tash the way that the kalishtar work is they will have one quarry for multiple entity for multiple people which meant cora didn't just Korra wasn't the only one separated from half of herself, but many, many other quarry were also cut off or uh, other Kalishtar were cut off from Tash when Tash basically sacrificed themselves uh, to get rid of entropy. And now there's all these lost people that have to reconnect. That was really a powerful, you know, really powerful story. Um, and uh, went back to Valis. So yeah, uh, uh, Korra went back to Valis and said, like, you were a split personality too, and I'm a split personality. I need to learn what it's like being half of myself. Uh, and that was really interesting. Uh, Odell was played by my wife. Uh, Odell was another changeling uh, and was a fancy courtier uh, who worked for the King of Breland and then was sent on assignment to, to go to House Kenneth to stop the last war and was secretly an agent of the King's Dark Lanterns uh, the whole time. And then at the end, I think it was like the, the most well-known secret in the game. Uh, and then uh, Odell, at her after completing the uh, the thing, went back to the King's Dark Lanterns uh, and brought. Um, uh, she was particularly interested in disassembling the dark parts of the Orum, like putting the hard eye in the Orum. So that's gonna that that'll be very interesting. A whole you can think about like the character's campaign going against the the shadowy Orum. Uh, Quinfer was a wizard, uh, got kicked out of Morgrave University, ended up starting his own university for people who got kicked out of other universities called SCUM, the Secret College of Unfortunate Mages. Uh, and they all worked together. Uh, and he became the, the, dean of the, the dean of the college. Uh, so he was the one that originally read and understood the Tome of Colseer um, and, uh, you know, got kind of arrested. He got kicked out because he was supposedly had stolen these things that it turned out Lido Skull had stolen. So really fun, really fun stuff there. Uh, Hadrian Deaconeth was one of the main connectors to House Kenneth, uh, was a uh, nephew of their patron, Uncle Dave. Uncle David, David Deaconeth was his name. Uncle Dave is what he went by. Uh, and he went back to House Kenneth to help guide their research and recognize that like House Kenneth 
had done a bunch of terrible things during the war and needed to make up for this fact, even though the people that actually did it were mostly dead. Um, that House Kenneth, you know, helped wanted to guide them to make sure that things were heading towards peace and not towards another war. And he did this by introducing an institutional re review board. Uh, and Alamis was played by um, uh, my friend James, uh, who is now joined in my Frost Maiden game. Uh, and he played in the last few uh, sessions of this one. And um, having been jaded by the King's Dark Lanterns, he, he split and um, um, good chunk of KDL for not acquiring the weapon instead of destroying the lantern. Um, so he's going to retire from the King's Dark Lanterns to spend time with his elvish family and might well be, uh, be the King's Dark Lanterns that tries to make the weapon next time. He, he is, was originally an undercover agent of the King's Dark Lanterns, but began to feel that they were, they were seeking the weapon more than they wanted to destroy it and that that was too dangerous. So that was kind of fun. So yeah, as rich the stories you've heard me talk about the Sunday game, my Wednesday game also had very rich stories, which also makes me sad because it's like I've got these two different sets of stories that are leaving and, and they, were, they were wonderful. But yeah, you can read all the things. So the, you know, the NPC journal uh, with all of the NPCs are here. Um, the you know, locations, all the different locations with all the maps and all the art that I threw in here is all, all here. And uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's something else. Like, you, you, you know, if you, again, if you've been watching the show, the few, first few episodes of this, I was doing just with text editors. And it was about halfway through here where I started using Notion. And man, Notion made it so much more fun to run campaigns. I'm so happy to have found it and use it. And I, I took just a great tool for this. And what, one of the things I really like about it, like I, I, when this was done, I exported it. So I've got a pile of HTML files sitting on my desktop computer or my, on my laptop that has all of this in it. So I won't lose it. Even if I stop using Notion later, I've got the whole campaign in a wiki-like archive so I can navigate it later. 10 years from now, I can look back on that campaign and click through, oh God, you remember doing that? And it's kind of hard sometimes to have that sort of archive. I mean, some people I think probably have archives of the campaigns, but for me, it's really cool to be able to, to, to be able to go back and, and, and have that. So, uh, so I really dig it. So that is it. Uh, that was my Eberron game. Um, I know the show has not gone an hour, but I think I think I've kind of squeezed everything out of the show that I wanted to get. So I want to uh, I want to thank everybody for those of you who managed to watch all like fifty episodes of this. You guys are awesome, and I want to thank you for it. Um, and for those of you just watching this show, I hope you enjoyed it. I, I think it's kind of fun to look at how a campaign ended and what it was like. I hope my three tips were useful. Uh, so yeah, uh, RSR says, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. So, um, yeah. So I want to thank everybody for coming. Uh, always appreciate it. Great time. Uh, get out there and, and, and thank you again. And next week I'll be talking about Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. And, uh, so we will start with session zero of Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, which I think people will definitely be interested in. So I want to thank everybody for coming. Have a great day and get out there and play some D and D.